0: There's an old story, uh, and I've told it before, about a minister who on a cold and wintry day at church, uh, really bad weather outside, he met with an elder and he said, wow, I've prepared this sermon, but there's so few people, Uh, what do I do? And his elder was a cattleman. A, farm, a cattle rancher, he said, well, preacher, he said, when I get really bad weather, knowing that a lot of the cows are going to stay up in the, the woods, but some are still going to come down to the feeding area, I, I've got my hay truck, and I still go out and feed them. I'm going to feed the faithful and the hungry that show up. And so the preacher said, okay, I'm going to do that. And so, not only did he preach, but he preached an extra long and fiery sermon to this smaller attendance. And uh, at the end of the service, he happened to cross paths with the elder. And the elder said, Come here a second. He said, So, when I said that I feed them, I didn't mean that I gave them the whole load. And so, this morning, I'm going to edit some of my remarks. Not so much for the sake of time, but for the sake of focus. And you'll notice it's a rather large portion of Scripture. And a lot of this I'll come back to, but I want you to give attention as I read. And as I read, I'm going to make just a couple of comments, uh, exegetical comments as we go along. And then I'll spend the remainder of our time uh, with application being really focused about the takeaway. How can I take this personally? Now, God has something for you this morning. If church is a hobby for you, if it's just something I, I do, I'm in the habit of it, and it's just kind of a hobby. Uh sometimes I go, sometimes I don't. Uh and uh, or I go every Sunday, but I'm it's just I'm just really plateaued. Then I want to encourage you this morning to approach God's Word as knowing that it's different than any other word. It's God's Word. It comes from God. It comes from above. It's supra-natural, meaning above nature, out of this world. It's wild. And it's understandable. But God the Holy Spirit is in this place and He makes His Word understandable. It's not gibberish. It's not a wild New Age philosophy of a wheel and a wheel and a circle and out in the ozone somewhere. And it's life changing. With that in mind, we are sitting under God's Word. With God speaking. With us understanding with the expectation that we're going to be different on the other side of this forever. This is God's Word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You're aware of who Peter is. um, One of the twelve disciples, and also one of the three. There was Peter, James, and John. He was one of the intimates with Jesus Christ. In the next verses that I read, the next number of verses, you're going to read over and over again, He will say, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And so it's not simply a theology lesson that he's getting into, but he wants ever to point us like a disciple that we are to a daily walk and relationship with Jesus. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He is not writing simply to the local church, but he he is writing a letter that will impact an area about the size of the southwest, from Texas to California. It's a huge area. And in that area, there are believers in Christ, particularly Gentiles, those that don't have Peter's Jewish heritage, who have come to see Jesus Christ as the great forgiver. They are the elect because God has begun a work in them. God took the first step. Um, and God has drawn them to himself. And now, because of persecution or because of travel, they're dispersed over this huge region. And Peter addresses them as disciples They are following and walking with Jesus, but they're also exiles, not simply um, refugees to their own home uh, geography, but they're exiles in their faith. They're not of this world. They're in this world like us, but they're not of this world. Okay. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And I probably have a slide up for that somewhere um, to show that God, this work has begun by God. That he has chosen us and then the spirit sanctifies us. That means opens our eyes and our ears that like coming to life from the dead, we now understand. And that we're sprinkled, strange language that Peter uses It's really talking about the altar would have been sprinkled with blood to completely cover a people for forgiveness of their sins, so that we're 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 washed by Jesus Christ. We're set aside. And notice in verse two that it's the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. We're we're saved. We're called. We're elect. We're chosen and for the purpose of obedience. And don't think religion, don't think mere duty. Think about really being more like a people who have fallen in love. You know, when we, when we get married, we obey, we love, honor, cherish, and obey our mate, but it's not a groveling, dutiful type of obedience. It's, it's a happy response to that love relationship. We follow. Think about follow. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that's where we're going this morning, is to talk about and to see this wonderful flow of grace. Peter, in this chapter, well, really throughout the whole letter, and he will end in in chapter 5, he begins and he ends with grace. He keeps coming back, and he knows about grace as a disciple. He knows what it's like to portray, betray Jesus Christ, whom he loved, who he respected and admired as a man, who he walked with and camped with and ate with. He knows what it's like to fail him. He knows what it's like to experience an all-forgiving grace, an all-forgiving mercy from Christ. And he responds in verse 3, even as he's writing, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? Why did God save me? Why did God show grace to me? Why did God invite me to be a disciple? A disciple is a student, but it's more than that. A disciple is someone that has said, This is the rabbi, this is the teacher, this is the leader that I will follow. This is the coach. This is the one that I, this is the mentor. This is my hero. This is the one that I will follow and model my life after. This is the one that I will learn to be like and think like and act like. How did that invitation, how did it, where did it come from? Was God just trying to build this great army of followers? just for himself and his own purposes, it began with hesed. It began with this word, great mercy, in verse 3. That goes all the way back to Exodus 34, where God introduces his name to Moses by saying, I'm a God of steadfast, faithful love. In other words, even when you fail to love, I never fail to love. I Love you because I love you. I put my love upon you, even without you deserving it. It all starts there. Verse, um, verse four. We've been called to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. There's there's an inheritance of heaven and life eternal. That is waiting for us. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last time. It's not simply relying upon me and my own strength. It's not relying upon me at all. I respond to God's continuing, renewing work. And redeeming and transforming work in my life. The biggest action on my part. And obedience is surrender. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, <clears throat> Peter's going to be talking to them about the trials that they face that challenge their faith. And they may look very different for us. These were a persecuted people and, an, and, and had left their homes um, in many places because of the active persecution. They were killing Christians. Most of us have not experienced such a challenge to our faith. And yet, each of us have our own fight. Each of us have our own challenge, temptation, or trial to our faith. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, he's saying, we are the beneficiaries of men who search the scriptures of old looking for the arrival of Christ. But what's more, all of the glory that he would bring by applying grace to his people that we would be his people. Not simply that the Messiah would come. That was, they longed for that, but everything that it would bring. And that was where they put their hope and they put their confidence and their faith in God that a Messiah would come. And he would lay claim to his people. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So it's happened. They long looked for that. Now Peter says it's happened. And he's saying even the angels... Long to understand this amazing flow of grace. It began a long ago with a, with a promise in the garden that God would redeem His people. He would show grace to them undeserved that they would be marked out as His elect, as His people. And that flow has become a torrent. That as he began to save his people, we were born again. Then we began to grow in a present grace that we call it theologically sanctification. Where we now, we didn't simply come to know Jesus Christ and, and just re- remain static. We came to know Christ and we're changing day by day, month by month, year by year. We're growing more into the image of Christ until ultimately this flow of grace, unstoppable, has now become a flood and a torrent that this grace, unstoppable, wild grace has come to be so overwhelming that now we're immersed in this grace, daily experiencing its properties, that one day in eternity we will be perfected that this grace, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. On that day, we will no longer weep. We will no longer sin. We will no longer face temptation. We will see and lay physical eyes on a physical Jesus And we will be in intimacy of fellowship and newness of complete and perfect life with Him forever. And that's the promise. That's where grace is taking us. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now He is going to give us language here to describe what our response is to this ever-flowing grace in our life it's not a ho-hum response and it's not an unchanged life response it's a response to say from God who has shown this everlasting love to me that I'm going to respond by giving my life in surrendered obedience in surrendered holiness and purity to him As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Remember, he's speaking to a lot of Gentiles. A lot of folks that would have been engaging in idol worships. And idols would basically be catering to our our base appetites and passions. He's saying, don't feed your passions in ignorance anymore. But may you find your passions fulfilled... In Jesus Christ. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter does this a lot in this section. It's called the indicative then the imperative. In other words, He tells you something. He tells you something that is true and very, very uh, good. And then he says, now that you know that, this is what you must do. He does this by saying, first of all, here's your identity. Here's who you are. And then here's what you do. The indicative and then the imperative. He says, God is your father. Now follow him as a son or a daughter would follow a father. You've been chosen by God. You've been, he's put his love upon you out of all the peoples in the world. He's put his love upon you. Now act like a people who are not of the world but of this God. It's important that you know this. It's important that you see this. If you get it mixed up, then you don't understand grace. If you think, I do these things and now I have an identity. I will obey God and then he will love me. That's often what we think of as religion. It's certainly the other world religions. But grace is, I love you. You are my child. Now follow. And it's this that fuels our obedience and our purity. Again, think about a child who experiences the incredible identity as a son or a daughter in the family. And then the father or the mother asks them, for an act of obedience, and that it flows not dutifully, though it may at the earlier ages, but it comes to be a point of saying, This is my identity as a member of this family. And because of the shelter and the provision and the love that my parents have for me, I won't do this begrudgingly, but I'll do this happily, joyfully. Verse uh, 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for your sake. This is what the saints, the prophets, the, the, the men, the patriarchs, this is what they were looking for. They were looking and they, they, they came to see that in the passage of time, that while God provided a lamb to atone for the sin of the people, that it was inadequate, that what they needed was one lamb from God for his people to be the Passover lamb that would completely cover their house and them with the forgiveness of sins. Verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Two things, he says here in verse 22, indicative, your souls have come under obedience to the truth, and then he says again through the living and abiding word of God at the end of verse 23. What he's talking about here is the gospel. The truth is synonymous with the gospel. I'm a sinner, He's a Savior, and now I'm a son or a daughter. The truth is the gospel that I was wandering lost in my sin, but out of His great hesed, mercy, steadfast love, He came into my world, He opened my eyes, He provided Jesus Christ, and now I am His forever. That's the gospel, that's the truth. That's the living and abiding Word of God that it's living in me and it's changing me as I preach and rehearse the gospel again and again and again. But there's a test. That's the indicative. The imperative is love one another with a sincere love. The fruit of the gospel of grace is that I'm able to show grace even to the least of these in our midst. He's saying, if you're experiencing this, then purify your relationships by treating one another as brothers and sisters. And not only treating one another as family, but with the very grace that is alive and working in you. Indicative, you have the gospel. You are a son and daughter. The imperative, love one another from the gospel. Then finally... All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. A couple of quick points um, of application. I know it's like drinking from a fire hose. But the flow of grace is threefold. It begins with our conversion, which is also known as justification. It goes and flows into our transformation. It's a present grace that we know as sanctification. But how does sanctification work? Sanctification, if you were to look at Psalm 36, verse 8. Psalm 36, verse 8 says, They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the rivers of your delight. Now, I believe that we can apply this literally. That this is not the psalmist simply being poetic, but he's talking about an experience that we can have now as well as in a future day in a feast in heaven. Think about when you're invited in just a few moments to the Lord's table. The officers of the church, the elders or deacons will hold out to you a plate of bread and a cup and they'll say, this is the body of the Lord. This is the blood of the Lord for you. We are being fed by God to feast on Him in abundance from this table. We're being fed reminders as we reenact the drama of His broken body in our place. We reenact the Passover, shed blood being put over the lentils that death would pass us by. We're reenacting those original disciples as today's disciples fellowshipping with Christ around the table and Him feeding us in abundance in fellowship with Him. There's three pipelines of grace. Some theologians have called these the means of grace. But there's three primary ways that we feed and we drink grace. Number one, we hear God's voice. That's, that's every, in our everyday worship. We set apart time to read God's word. Right now, you are hearing God's voice from the scriptures. Secondly, we have God's ear. That is prayer. When we pray, We can have every assurance because of grace that God hears. And knowing that God hears is a grace to us. Knowing that God hears my voice and my prayers. Knowing that Jesus Christ intercedes and the Holy Spirit makes my words and my utterances translatable and pure. Is a grace to me. It gives my heart strength. It strengthens my faith. It shores up my hopes. The third pipeline of grace or the third means of grace is we belong to His body. That is, we are in church membership, church community, Christian fellowship. These three things are at work as a present grace To transform us. Are you experiencing it? If you neglect God's word, then you will find that you are bending more and more toward your words or the counsel of others apart from God. You become self-reliant. And you also find that in that absence, if you're a disciple... That there's a want, a want for God to speak with clarity again. Return, return. I was going to uh, show you that grace, this is not a pipeline, but grace is like water poured into our vessel, into our life. But our problem, our problem that all of us experience is that we leak. So that my everyday worship, God's Word that I read yesterday, my prayers and my conversation with God and hearing Him respond, His voice yesterday, the fellowship that I have with you today, is not enough. It is not enough for a whole week of days. Because I leak. I take in God's word. I hear God's voice. I experience worship. I experience the friendship of believers and their love. But then, slowly, slowly, it begins to dissipate. And it's because... It's a relationship, and it's not simply a discipline and a habit. The solution is to see it as reading God's Word, praying to Him, being in fellowship, as to be in intimacy and relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't focus so much on your own Christ-likeness. Oh, I'm becoming... I'm becoming more and more obedient, more and more pure. By Look at my discipline. I would never miss a quiet time. I would never miss fellowship with God's people. I would never miss community group or church on Sunday morning. Rather than what we're to do is we're to focus on Christ in those things. And so Peter advises us. He tells us in verse 13, Prepare your minds for action. And you would have a footnote. If you have an ESV Bible of your own, you'll see a footnote there to prepare your mind for action is to literally gird your mind for action, like the girding of your loins. At the Passover, they were encouraged to gird their loins, to take their flowing garments and to strap them to their thighs and to make sure they were wearing their sandals so that they'd be ready to go. In other words... When we experience the means of grace in everyday worship and on Sunday morning, this table is a part of fellowship and belonging to the family. When we experience this, it equips us for obedience. It equips us for purity and holiness because that then doesn't simply become a duty. It becomes a response to the grace that is mine. That's the point. That's the sermon. I, uh, I won't take time to... Uh, well, maybe I will. The, the, final, the final transformation that we experience by grace is glorification. And I, for many, many years for many, many years, experienced a plateau in my faith such that one year looked pretty much like the year before, such that a year earlier, if you had looked at a spiritual report card on me or scorecard, it would look pretty much the same as that year later. And I believe that the reason for that was that I thought, I've, Come to know Christ in my conversion. I've been born again. I've walked with him for many years, and so I'm a Christian man. I'm sanctified, and yes, there's still areas that are being tweaked and improved upon. But really the next big outpouring of grace is when we shall see Jesus and we shall be like him, as it says in John three, verses two and three, that we will see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus physically and being in His presence, there's going to take place a transformation that we're going to be like Him. In other words, I believe that this state of glorification awaited us in heaven. But what I've come to believe now is that it's already taken place. It will be completed in heaven, but it's taken place right now. You're becoming more and more, as a son and daughter, to look like Jesus. And with that goal in mind, we face temptations. This was in a Leadership Magazine. Uh, an anonymous author who was describing his trial with lust said, The thought hit me like a bell rung in a dark, silent hall. So far, none of the scary, negative arguments against lust has succeeded in keeping me from it. In other words, people have presented to him horror stories about where his lust would take him. But it didn't stop him. But here was a description of what I was missing By continuing to harbor lust, I was limiting my own intimacy with God. The love he offers is so transcendent and possessing that it requires our faculties to be purified and cleansed before we can possibly contain it. Could he in fact substitute another thirst and another hunger for the one I had never filled? Would living water somehow quench lust? That was the gamble of faith. Beloved, the energy to fight against a sin pattern or a trial or a temptation that seems to have a real tenacious grip on our heart is not is not to look to holiness as something that you do as much as it says it is hope it is hope in being intimate with God it is hope in being a transformed son and daughter to be like Christ and all of his beauty and glory that he shares with me. It is that hope that then causes me to look at these things that do nothing but taint and pull me away from such intimacy. Hope produces holiness. I, it is my hope in the love of my mate and my bride that causes me to want to be a better man. It's not fear that I'm going to lose her love that causes me to be a better man. That doesn't work. But it's all of my hopes that she loves me, she loves me. It says, and now I want to respond by being better in response to love her. And so Jesus Christ comes to us And he presents this table. And he says, at this table is real fuel for this disciple's walk with me. For you experience afresh and anew, visually even, tactically even, substantially by eating. My grace to you that gives you power to set apart your life. To follow me in obedience and holiness and purity in the relationship that we have of a steadfast love. That is the flow of grace now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would set aside this table and that you would use it as a means of grace, a channel of grace that just That grace would flow from this bread and this cup into my life. And grace does not condemn. Grace does not judge. Grace forgives and proclaims a steadfast love. And in response to that, I am strengthened to walk with you in purity of life. For I see Jesus in these things and would have none other. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.